Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Look at our flow of, of dialogue. What do you want to talk about next? Bass Holdings or is it Akami? I've read it multiple well, times, but I never figured out how to say it. I don't know how to pronounce it. No. Nope. <laughs> well, this is probably the biggest, most famous company you don't know. Uh, it, it's it's called Akamai. Um, okay. Akamai. Which, okay. oh boy. Uh, it means it's it's a Hawaiian word. It's also a fish, but it, it oh gosh. They're going to get my favorite clients and get so mad at me. We were putting the em- emphasis on the wrong syllable. What, what's yeah. that? <laughs> Say that again. Now. The emphasis was on the wrong syllable. <laughs> um, well, I'm trying to remember what the word actually means, but anyway, that's not important. Akamai, we'll, we'll do that since, uh, since uh, we're into the pronunciation. We can go beyond that um, because it's another tax and technology issue, and this one was tried and decided at the trial level, the appellate tax board. Commissioner of Revenue. Uh, lost the case, but also involved in the case for some cities and towns because it affected local property taxes too. Um, and they appealed, and those appeals were eventually dropped. So it didn't have to go up to the highest court. But what's important about Akamai, all right, is Akamai, the reason they're important is because most big users of the internet businesses, we're, we're talking about media companies, right? You know, any any website, lost traffic, banking, and order to make transactions or uh, interactions on the website happen faster, uh, they really need not just the internet to work its magic, but something called a content delivery network. And that's what Akamai is. And Akamai is the largest ones of those. And so Akamai's customers um, can use software to manage and control their, um, their, their communications and their website activity and what messages go where and who sees what website and what language and all this other things. The other part of this and the bigger part of it is, I'll get, I learned all this, so I feel like I have to talk a little bit about it, but it was, it, it's very complex, but it, um, I had to learn how the internet works and then what Akamai's place in it is. It? But they have servers in a lot of different places and those servers can cache uh, your website content. So users nearby can access it quickly, and then you can manage and control the caches through the software. Okay, here's the question in this case. Is Akamai selling software, or is it selling not software, is it services or, uh, or something else? If it's software, they get to be a manufacturer in Massachusetts. Manufacturing you know, is fairly broadly defined, but by statute, it includes creating software that people buy, even if the software is intangible. Okay. The flip side to that is if, if you are a manufacturer of software, it's probably subject to sales tax too. So, you know, two sides of that same coin. This was beneficial for companies like Akamai and others headquartered in Massachusetts because you also get single sales factor. Um, that's good for local companies. There's a bunch of other benefits too. Okay. When there are a lot of complex offerings by technology companies where it's hard to tell what it is you're selling. Um, it could be a combination of services and software. And how do you unbundle that? Or it could be the product itself. Who's using it? Is Akamai using the software and then providing a service? All of those questions come up. So do we have a checklist of things for making that determination? Because so much rides on the determination of whether you're selling software 
But well, then you're not selling software. And so what it comes down to, you can read this case and parse it out and, and, and find a lot of important factors that should go into this analysis. And it does so more than many other authorities I've seen. Massachusetts has a series of letter rulings. I've seen other rulings in other cases. But this is really good guidance for what should and should not be looked at. Bottom line, the substance of what people are selling and what customers are using and what they're using it for, that should drive these things. So in the trial, we did a demonstration to show we actually put up the uh, user interface and all the different components, and it got very complex because of how complex this software and this whole uh, system is. But we were able to demonstrate that what they are actually buying is software that they use like you would buy for another software product. What helped was that different components of what Akamai does, they could be bought through things, other software providers that are clearly software. So, so that helped. But uh, here's really important guidance in this case, so the Department of Revenue, their argument was that Akamai was a service provider, and what they pointed to were marketing materials. Have you ever read marketing materials for like a really complex technology, and it's written for their customers, and I can't, you know, on first read, understand a word of it. The customers, not a word. The customers, or when it's I, written so generic that it's like, here's what we'll do, and that's it. And you're like, yeah. but. How? No, I still don't know what it is that you're going to do. That's exactly right. It's, 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 you know, it, it's, it's a whole nother language. Just like we speak a different language, yeah. they absolutely speak a different language. They, we, we, have, we have some software companies that, you know, uh, we know what they do because we work with them. But looking at their website with a fresh pair of eyes, yeah. no idea. You wouldn't know. And, and they're unless, so unless immersed in, in this world that to bring in the really brilliant engineers. To bring them on the stand, I, I, you know, and work with them to explain to the court uh, what it is they do. There was a bit of deprogramming. You have to talk to me so I can understand you. And so, you know, we just worked on, on, you know, dropping that kind of, of, of language. But what the marketing materials often say is services, because ultimately every software product you buy, if it works, you get a service. But you're buying software. You know, when I go into um, TurboTax software and they do my return, you could call that a service. But so you could use the word services, but you're not buying anyone to do a professional service for you. You are using the software. So the language gets confusing, customer stories, descriptions get confusing. And so we made that part of our argument. But here was something that was fun is one of the star witnesses intended for the Department of Revenue was an expert. And he was an economist and very well respected. And he had a very detailed analysis and study showing that question is whether we're a software company or not. His argument was we, Akamai was not, because if you look at all the economic metrics that you would do, uh, you know, ratios, assets, net worth, all these other things, uh, they don't fall into a category of other software companies, was the argument. We objected and got that witness excluded entirely. He was certainly competent at what he was talking about, but the material wasn't qualified or relevant for this case because the court fortunately understood that none of that matters. Only what matters is what are they selling and are they selling software? And if users are connecting it, there's no human interaction, it's pre-written and they are making things happen, then 
and it's not a rental or anything else like that, that's software. So anyway, uh, long story is it's, it's very good guidance for kind of teasing out what's important and what's not important uh, for making these determinations that can have a lot of consequences. But people wonder, like, how is a software company manufacturing, right? And Mass we're not the only state, but while we don't have an exact statutory definition of manufacturing, even though we know it includes software companies, it's pretty broad, right? And so it's really just an interesting discussion of what's relevant. Uh, maybe 15 years ago, I had a case that ultimately went to the SJC, but I had a client and the principal was on the stand talking about the company. And it needed to be either an R&D company or a manufacturing company to win the case, right? And But at depositions before I got involved, they said, we're not a manufacturing company. We don't actually produce the final product. During the years at issue, we hadn't sold anything yet. We were still developing the blueprints and writing it. Now, we won the case because that's still manufacturing under the broad interpretations by the courts. You're doing a substantial and integral case. But before we got there, before we knew what was happening, witnesses on the stand, other side's counsels getting up, has the deposition testimony ready and asks my witness, are you a manufacturer? Well, I don't like that question because if he says no, that's really bad for my case. And if he says yes, she'll impeach him and he'll undermine his credibility. So what do you do? Well, I object. That's what lawyers can do. I, I object <laughs> to that question. Why? He just asked if he's a manufacturer. Isn't that what this case is about? Exactly what this case is about. And the questions are relevant. What he thinks is manufacturing has no bearing on this case. Judge, Your Honor, it's up to you to take all the facts uh, of what the company was doing and make that decision under the law. But what, right. you know, what, what we, we can't operate with this Dickensian notion of manufacturing and get his opinion on that because that's misleading. Anyway, the other attorney got red in the face uh, because they had so much riding on that. <laughs> uh, but the objection was sustained. So that was one of my my favorite, uh, you know, successful objections. My, my favorite objection of all time, by the way, not that you ask, uh, the TV. I have two t favorite TV uh, or movie t uh, uh, courtroom uh, moments. My favorite objection is in the movie Liar Liar with Jim Carrey. You know, where he's can only tell the truth and something's going bad for his case and he stands up in his Jim Carrey way. You ought to object. Why? Because it's devastating to my case. <laughs> it's the most honest I remember objection. That, yeah. Ultimately, all <laughs> objections truly are. That's the, that's the and it just said overruled. Good call. Um, that was my favorite objection, but I, 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 I enjoyed the interaction of, of, of getting what seemed like the most straightforward on point question uh, ruled to be irrelevant. So that's kind of a manufacturing backstory on, on Akamai. I, I, I love what everything that you just said. And, and, you know, we deal with this so much. Um, oh my gosh, I have so many thoughts running through my head right now. I'm going to try to organize them. Kudos to you again, kudos to you and, and to the court for, for recognizing this. Um, there's so much discussion in sales tax uh, on substance versus form, for form versus substance. And, you know, and, and sales tax historically has been a form over substance type of tax, right? And now that we're seeing some of these substantive issues raised and discussed and, and cases decided on substance, it's, it's just unbelievably refreshing. 
we we see it all the time, you know, uh, specifically in audit defense, where you know we want to see the MSA, you know, defending a software company in an audit. We want to see the MSA, and then the auditor throws that same MSA back in your face and says, "Oh, look at the, the word services plastered all over this thing." I'm like, so what? You know, so it doesn't matter. That's right. <laughs> That's yeah. You're letting form control the substance. You, you, yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's almost like a game of gotcha. I, I get yeah. that you're selling software, but aha, you said service. We'll we'll stick, right. we'll stick to that. And and in technology, that comes from a total misunderstanding of how those terms are used within the industry. So that became part of the testimony for on on our side, our direct side. Is you know. What, what language do you use? What what do you think this means? Not for truth of the matter asserted, but just to explain that when you say these things, they aren't tax, you know, uh, oriented uh, explanations. They're just how you speak in a different world doesn't translate to to our world. Yeah. Well, and kind of what was interesting is that right, Akmai was specifically referenced and it was the title of a TIR put out by the department. So is that common that a TIR is going to be issued based directly on the outcome of a case and specifically just that like the taxpayers referenced in it? Like that's just from like a non-legal technical, right? Because Colorado is kind of right. I'm based in Colorado. And so We've gotten really like shy about our FYIs and our technical memorandums because we don't want to be held to anything anymore. So you just have to do one of those, stick your finger in the air and guess. And so from like, you know, a non-litigator, it's like, huh, that's really interesting. Um, I don't know if Massachusetts is alone in this, but it is, I, I think, even statutorily required that a TIR, technical information, be released when there is a court decision that will affect taxing policy. And so it, it is common. We expect that sometimes they take a long time to do it. Uh, they did issue a TIR after Akamai. I think they did one after the Oracle case and they did one after the Reagan case. And, you know, uh, worst case scenario, it, it's an opportunity for the department to say, we see this case, but we won't follow it. That, that would be trouble. But more often, they don't usually do that. What they do say is, we see this case, but this is how we understand it. And this is how we're going to apply it. I, I will say with the Akamai TIR, it's not terribly enlightening, but I think they're working on detailed regulations that they've been working on for a long time to give. And in Massachusetts, I really do commend them. The public written statements, regulations, TIRs, by and large, offer guidance that you are looking for, but you don't find in other states. So, they, I mean, there are good attempts and we'll, we'll fight them when we think they're too restrictive or or not consistent with the case or the, the statute. but So that particular TIR was, not like I said, not terribly enlightened beyond the case, but I think they're working on more. And, and they'll talk about, like for Oracle, explain what the abatement process is going to be like now because the Oracle decision opened up the door for all these other things. There was another case recently, um, Reagan versus Commissioner of Revenue, similar thing, taxpayer win, TIR explained uh, how the policy is going to be implemented. So it's a, it's it's a good thing to have. Um, does that, Rich? Does that happen in, in Massachusetts, where the department will openly not follow a court case, limited to its facts, and then just go a different way? So no, not often. And I I do think 
It happened once many years ago, and I cannot recall it, but I don't expect that. Uh, if, if the department is, they won't issue a TIR before all the appeals are completed, right? They'll wait till all that is done. Um, so it's not something I expect to happen. I, I can think there was an instance of it. Now, with the Bats Holdings case, there was a TIR. Um, and most of that TIR was to say, okay, here's what the VAS Holdings case said. Uh, and here are about a half dozen or more instances where it won't apply to these facts, to each one of these one by one, uh, to, to your benefit. So they, they carve out a lot of exceptions so people don't attempt to think it means more than it does. And, and for like 80% of those, that was perfectly appropriate in, the, in that case, in that TIR. But maybe maybe it should, should we talk about that case a little bit as well? Yeah, that was the perfect, that was kind of the last kind of big case on our list that we were going to talk about today. So let's do it. Okay. Let's, so Let's get into uh, Mass Holdings. I, I, yeah, this, this is a fascinating case to talk about. Oracle was ours. Uh, U.S. Auto was not. And VAS, VAS Holdings was not our case either, but we played a role in it in that uh, we filed an amicus brief. And I worked on that on behalf of the ACTC. And that the, one of the arguments in that case, in that brief, ended up driving the decision that hadn't been raised anywhere else. But just the, for background, you had a... Uh, a, a non-Massachusetts entity, a holding company, and it was owned by a non-resident of Massachusetts, was an escrow, and it sold its interests in an LLC. And that LLC had operations in Massachusetts. And the question is, can Massachusetts tax the holding company, which I think was based at the domicile in Florida, or its owner, right, uh, on the gain from the sale because the underlying entity was in Massachusetts? Now, the backdrop is, right, long-standing policy that wasn't routinely questioned at all since, you know, 20 years or so. If you own an interest in a flow-through entity, like an LLC or partnership or something like that, because of the nature of flow-through entities, the um, gain can be taxed if the underlying business that you're selling was operating in Massachusetts without regard to unitariness or connection, just period. And there's a different rule for corporations, okay? Uh, because the stock ownership is, is just a different kind of intangible. You don't have the flow through nature. Everyone just kind of understood that, period. Uh, but this case comes up and said, wait, wait a minute. There, there was no unitariness. There was no connection, no interconnectivity between the owner of the intangible interests, which is the LLC interest, and the underlying company. And because of this unitary business principle concept, you can't tax the seller on the sale. The two, the, if the seller was unitary with the company operating in Massachusetts, then you can apportion that gain. And, and a portionable amount of that gain can be subject to tax in Massachusetts. So that was, that was the question. And, so the primary question, it went to the uh, Supreme Judicial Court, and the parties had stipulated that the buyer, the parent, and the LLC, they stipulated they were not unitary. And they also kind of stipulated that this is just a constitutional question that the statute would otherwise allow Massachusetts to tax this entity. All right. Um, and so the focus of the arguments were, does the unitary business, business principle apply? And that's kind of a head scratch, scratcher. How, how can it not apply? 
we've got U.S. Supreme Court case after case, Asarco, uh, Allied Signal, Midwest Baco, many others, that the unitary business principle is the linchpin of apportionability. What does that mean? That means if you aren't connected, you don't have any unitary connection, and you sell an interest, which is an intangible, the ownership interest, uh, you can't be brought into the state where the underlying company is doing business because you, there's no connection. There's a break. So there's, you know, so there's no linchpin, right? What was argued here was, okay, so what? We don't have unitary, we don't have unitariness, but the Constitution still allows it. The argument was, unitary isn't the only way to make that connection. Uh, we can do this connection by something called investee apportionment. Well, the vesti apportionment means that if the underlying company whose interest was sold and in, in, was doing business in Massachusetts, that's enough. The investee, you know, can uh, can apportion and owner is taxable on that amount. That is, to me, a just simple, plain end run around the idea of the connectivity and the principle we need it because we know the underlying company is doing business in Massachusetts and it'll be taxed when those assets got sold or or what have you, but the owner, we're only looking at the owner. We're only looking at the owner, which is a person or a company, and all it had was an investment. That's what non-unitary means. It had an investment interest. So stock in IBM, it wouldn't be taxed everywhere IBM is doing. Now, I will say that the MTC filed an amicus brief that I thought had some logic to it. It just wasn't applied right. The, the idea that investee apportionment should simply supplant unitary business principle, and you can just do an end run around it. I, I, I just can't, it doesn't make any sense to me, and I, I just can't see it being applied. What the MTC tried to say is, well, wait a minute. Okay, we get that you're not unitary. We can't apportion on because you guys are not connected. We're not going to throw away the unitary business principle concept. But that doesn't mean there can be no tax. The reason you're taxed is because the intangible that you sold has to have a situs somewhere. And we think that situs should be in Massachusetts. Now, the first part about it being situs, and it could be taxed to the place where it's situs, and that wouldn't have to be the domicile of the owner, I can respect that. Where, where I fall off is, but that intangible cannot be situs in Massachusetts. Uh, there was a, a case called Whitney, where you have a movable situs uh, of an intangible that's sold that's not the same as the domicile of the seller. And that was the case of a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. It was intrinsically tied to New York because it was the rights to a seat. That's not what this was. Okay. But this court did decided, first of all, it decided what we argued in our amicus brief, right, was we argued this is unconstitutional, but we also argued in the amicus brief that even if it were constitutional, you have to look at Massachusetts statutes, and Massachusetts statutes and regulations clearly apply and adopt the unitary business principle exclusively. So even if it were permissible to do not do the internal, uh, the unitary business principle as a rule constitutionally, statutorily, Massachusetts can't tax it. The parties didn't raise that, but we did. And then after oral arguments, the courts did another round of briefing with just the parties to address that question. And ultimately, the court decided taxpayer wins because the statute didn't permit this tax. The statutes follow the unitary business principle. And then in about 20 to 30 extra pages, it said, but let's talk about this. And in a well-written discussion, 
uh, it, it talked about the constitutional issues. There was just one line, one paragraph, one page where it said, we still think you don't have to have unitary business principles. They, what they said was this tax would be constitutional permiss permissible. Um, it's just that the statutes didn't allow it. So I think we'll see other cases come up on this. Maybe the Supreme Court has to rule on it. But that was a long discussion that was arguably dicta because it wasn't what controlled the case. And I, my opinion is that it's flawed, even though a lot of the writing around it was good. But I just don't see how you get around this idea from all the Supreme Court cases that unitariness is the linchpin, that you could try to find a different way to do it uh, for apportionability. So that's that's that case. I have nothing to add. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, thank you for indulging my rambling about it. Uh, <laughs> well, and didn't they discuss like when the taxpayer was filing the returns that they like float up apportionment factors? And so that kind of alludes to like unitary versus like a direct allocation of like non-business, right? Because from a super basic level, when you're thinking yes. about pass-through entities, right? If you're unitary, you flow through factors. And if you're non-unitary, it's kind of, I hate to use the word non-business, but it's directly allocable, right? Yeah. You take whatever on your K-1 and plunk it on your return. Yes. Some states you are kind of forced one way or another, but didn't yeah. they kind of look at the, the way that the taxpayer had been filing the returns well, as part yeah. of a discussion in that case? Yeah, they did. I mean, and so one of the important concepts here that I didn't get into because I ran out of time uh, <laughs> was, is, you know, there's two things that can be taxed by the ownership of this business in Massachusetts. One is your flow through income on their operational income. There was no question they had nexus by virtue of owning a flow through entity. You know, they, mm -hmm. by, by owning this business, they're deemed to be doing the operations of that company. So all of the operational income uh, and apportionment factors are taxable every year to the owner. But that's one thing. That's operations. Tax on operations, that's one thing. That's not the tax that was issued here because that's a tax on, a, on the operations of the operating company in Massachusetts. Who pays that tax? The owner by flow through. No question. Now we, But this case involves something very different. We are not doing the, the sale of the parent's ownership interests is the sale of his investment, like me selling GM stock that I bought on the uh, in a stock exchange. Uh, what I am doing has nothing to do with what's happening in Massachusetts. So it's it's a completely separate analysis, and it, it, you know it's it, it's important to be looked at that way. When is it not a separate analysis? It's not a separate analysis when they're unitary. If they're unitary, then you really have to consider them together. Uh, and the operations and the taxability on the gain of the sale of that ownership interest. That's what the Supreme Court says. But they also say that when you're not unitary, I am just selling, I'm a guy or I'm a corporation, I'm just selling an investment in intangible. And that's how you look for taxability. So uh, looking at the returns wasn't uh, on, on taxability of the operational income, wasn't guidance for the answer in this question. Yes, it means they had nexus. Yes, that means that they were deemed to be doing business in Massachusetts, but we're not asking an excess question. Right. And so as we wrap up, and thank you for, you know, just the discussion and the background and even kind of like firsthand experience, right? Because you were part of, of these cases, which is, which is really great, right? Alex is a lawyer, and so he, you know, has that legal mind, but where you don't litigate, right? So it's always 
you know, for me, and I'm, I'm a CPA, um, not an attorney. And there's a back joke where, which is why Alex is smirking, but just love hearing the litigation stories and like the background to that. Cause that's the piece that you also don't, you know, you don't get to read on paper per se. Um, so we really appreciate that, that insight. And so kind of as we wrap up, if you could provide kind of our listeners with a soundbite of advice, not legal advice, can't hold them to it, right? Regarding state and state and local tax based on your experience, what would you what would you say or what would you focus on? So your state departments of revenue may instruct you as to how the tax applies. And there may be long accepted policies of whether a tax applies or how much tax applies or how it's apportioned. And that just doesn't mean it's correct. The fact that you're instructed by the Department of Revenue and this, the fact that it kind of seems to be universally accepted as longstanding policy, I mean, what I'm finding out is that might not be absolutely correct. And I say that just because of recent examples in Massachusetts with you know Oracle and the Reagan case, and there's a new case coming out involving State Street and research credits uh, that really, you know, flip on their heads uh, something that people just generally consider to be true and that it's taxpayer favorable. So uh, that doesn't mean you should challenge every policy. Probably most of them are right. Uh, So get a good advisor to know the difference between those uh, tax rules that you don't like that really shouldn't be challenged and those that might have some grounds for looking further. As a parent of little kids, all I can think of is just like, man, but I'm always right. So <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a department of revenue where I can be, they might be, it might be what I say, but it's not always right. When you're talking to your kids, that's how you should do it. And it's very easy to do that. Well, it doesn't get easy. It gets harder when they get older. Uh, but, you know, uh, but then when you're talking to somebody else, you can't take the same tone, right? So, I mean, I have clients that may not be, you know, the most sophisticated, you know, might be a domicile client, and they are instructed by the auditor uh, that this means you can't be considered a non-resident. You gave the chair, you did this other thing. And, you know, they can get pushed around a little bit, right? But if you bring someone in, who they know they can't say the same things with the same confidence, they, they will pull back. So or sometimes they'll, they'll do it any they'll, they'll have the same bluster for things that I think are, are questionable. And I guess the message, yeah, you know, the soundbite is not everything you are told uh, is necessarily correct and unchallengeable. And it may be hard to know the difference as to whether, you know, it's right or not. And, you definitely want guidance. We don't want someone to challenge everything. Um, I don't want clients that want to challenge things that I don't think are right. Uh, but, you know, the recent cases in the SJC tell us that, you know, at least in Massachusetts, that I mean, they're very smart and they're willing to take a, a good, fresh look um, without being overly deferential to the position and application of the Department of Revenue. They will look at the statutes, they will look at the policy, and they'll give a fresh look. And I think that's encouraging. The pendulum has swung the other way for many, many years. I remember being at a panel and two cases were discussed 
And in one case, the court decided, this was a Supreme Judicial Court saying, we know that the tax here doesn't seem to fit quite within the language of this constitutional amendment, but we think it was intended. It doesn't fit within, but we're going to take a broad reading of it. So taxpayer loses. And in another case, the appellate tax board said, uh, the exemption that the taxpayer wants to use is narrowly, well, we got to take a very, maybe intended to apply to this situation, but statutory construction, you know, strictly construed tells us we can't apply it. So we got one case doing, doing a broad interpretation, another case doing a really narrow interpretation. And I said, the chief of litigation for DOR was on the panel. I said, I can't understand how to reconcile these two cases. The only thing they have in common is the taxpayer lost both of them. And he said, yeah, that's good. <laughs> so the pendulum can change, though. Um, and so and, and if you get more aggressive positions taken by the Department of Revenue, you tend to have more success than taxpayers, as long as it's not too much deference and some fresh looks at by, by the courts or the judges um, as to the proper application. So that's been encouraging in the last few years. The pendulum keeps swinging. Well, Rich, thank you yeah. so much. We really appreciate your time and your expertise and your friendship as a friend of the firm. And this has been another episode of Saltivation. Till next time. Thanks very much. Bye. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented. 